So I'm going to be speaking to you today about atopic dermatitis, and it looks as if this is next. I, do, I don't have any current conflicts of interest. I have been the PI for several uh, studies involving atopic dermatitis treatments in the past and was formerly a speaker and consultant for both Novartis and Estellis. So why am I interested in atopic dermatitis? For one thing, as a pediatric dermatologist, it's a good part of what I do because so many kids have it. Um, where I trained, my favorite professor was a guru, international guru in atopic dermatitis. And then lo and behold, when I came to Atlanta and started working at Emory, my, I, I, I married a former patient who has atopic dermatitis. So then when we started having children, I worried about how many of my kids were gonna have atopic dermatitis. So there's my son, and then we had triplets. So the triplets are now 18, so here they are. They ended up having beautiful skin. You know, they're all dry skin kids, they don't have a blemish, so I could hire them in my office and it would look as if I really knew my stuff, you know. <laughs> But um, none of them have atopic dermatitis, although they are kind of dry. So just what is atopic dermatitis? Well, an itchy, chronic, inflammatory skin disease, you know, presents in infancy, early childhood. Uh, it can persist or present in the adult, but that's fairly rare. Um, there's an increased risk of asthma and allergic rhinitis, and it has significant effects on quality of life. So. This was uh, uh, one of the companies sponsored a, an art competition and asked kids to draw pictures of what it was like to live with atopic dermatitis. So notice here's this kid frowning, scratching, and it's dark behind that window. So up in the middle of the night with lots of tubes of cream on his, on his bedstand. So it's hard. And it's not only the kids that are sleep deprived, but it's the, the families, the parents too. So I think we all recognize atopic dermatitis when we see it, but there are these criteria, and uh, these are the older Hannafin and Lobus criteria that I kind of like. And so it always, a major criteria, itches, the facial and extensor distribution of the kids, flexural identification of the adults, chronic and relapsing family history of atopic dermatitis, and then these miter criteria, and I'll show you pictures of some of those things. So, um, Little ones can itch, so there are scratch marks from the nails on that little calf. Um, and when they're tiny, they may not be able to scratch, but they can rub. And so I call this the hair sign. <coughs> so if the kids have itchy scalps, they rub their little heads against their mother's shoulder or against the bedding. And the, especially if they're African-American, so the hair is more brittle, the hair can just break off and then it looks as if they don't have any hair. Except for the top of their head, where they've got plenty of hair because you can't scratch, you can't rub up there as, as, as easily. So in kids, the distribution, the babies, is classically uh, face and extensor extremities. In the adults, there's that flexural lichenification. And then there's a minor criteria. So you all know white dermatographism. So if all of us, if we don't have atopic dermatitis, you scratch your skin, you get a, white, a red linear wheel, and then that fades and goes back into normal skin. But with the atopics, it overfades. And so you end up getting a white stripe. Other changes on the face, the Denny infraorbital double pleats. And it's thought that those are due to edema is why they occur. Periorbital darkening, many patients have problems with that and dislike it. Facial pallor, now there's something called the Rudolph sign. You never see atopic dermatitis on the nose. Maybe because there's always a little bit of oil activity, we really don't know, but that is uh, very typical. And upper lip chelitis, and uh, patients with um, atopic dermatitis are at increased risk for a type of cataracts anterior subcapsular. So dryness, when it's severe, it's even uh, called ichthyosis vulgaris. And when it's small plates of scale like this, the ichthyosis vulgaris has been found now that we know about flagrant mutations in patients with atopic dermatitis. It's thought that the flagrant mutation patients have this. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So other minor manifestations, pityriasis alba. 
Now this is a dry skin problem and I know you see it all the time. That topical steroids do not work for this. So that's a mistake I see in my office. That the, the referring physician treated this with ex-topical steroid and it's no better. Well that's because there's no inflammation. So the anti-inflammatory topical steroid does squat. So this is a dry skin problem. So the treatment is moisturizers and then a lot of reassurance. Keratosis pilaris likewise is a dry skin problem. So it's uh, plugs of dry skin and the openings of the follicles. So topical steroids do nothing for this. There's no inflammation. So the treatment is dry skin treatment, but frankly, I tell patients nothing works for this. And I think it's a mistake to tell people, oh yes, put cream on twice a day and maybe some acid lotions or something and it's gonna be a lot better. I tell them that will help maybe 25%, but it doesn't get rid of it. Um, as far as I know, the only thing that works for keratosis pilaris is an acid peel followed by microdermabrasion. And that's not applicable to hardly anybody unless they're getting married or going to a ball and they need to have their arms looking good for that one occasion. So I think the reason we have so much trouble treating with the topical creams is that it's such a difficult, those plugs are in there and they're hard to loosen up. So moisturizers help somewhat. It doesn't make any sense to use much soap on this dry skin because that aggravates the dryness. Um, over scrubbing is, con is contraindicated. And then reassurance. And you can tell the parents that it always goes away on the cheeks. You just don't see adults with significant keratosis pilaris on their cheeks. And then there's something called perifollicular accentuation. Have you ever heard that term before? So this is really common and you see it with people who have atopic dermatitis and then on people who don't have atopic dermatitis. It's just fine, it's, 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 they're not papules, they're macules, little pinpoint follicular macules. And it's visible on African-American or darkly pigmented skin. But if our Caucasian patients get tan in the summer, you can see it on them too. And to me, that's just a marker for dry skin. And if you find that, it's just an incidental finding that families appreciate being told what that is. Oh, all the, see all these little pinpoint dots? That that's just a marker that your child has dry skin. So let's talk about what causes atopic dermatitis, and then we'll ease into how the standard treatments for it. So atopic dermatitis is one type of dermatitis, and you know that there are other types of dermatitis, contact dermatitis, irritant allergic stasis dermatitis, et cetera, et cetera. But in children, it's the most common type of dermatitis. So under the microscope, all dermatitis looks the same. So you can't make a diagnosis of atopic dermatitis and differentiate it from allergic contact dermatitis by doing a biopsy because they're identical. But clinically, the diseases are different by those criteria we talked about. So dermatitis means inflammation of the skin. So under the microscope, there's going to be spongiosis in the epidermis. So here we are as edema with a sp white spaces between and around the cells. That's you know, intracellular edema. And when it becomes severe enough, there's so much edema fluid, it works itself to the surface of the skin. The Greeks called this boiling over or eczema, which is where the term atopic eczema or pediatric eczema comes from. So eczema and, the, and dermatitis are synonymous. And we're talking about eczema in a child, usually we mean atopic dermatitis. So here's that sponge, that's crusting on the surface of the skin. So um, when we're thinking about what in the world causes atopic dermatitis, people always are arguing, is it the itch that rashes or the rash that itches, i.e., is there a primary lesion in atopic dermatitis? Um, and not, the thinking now is that the answer is yes, but it's transient that the primary lesion is an erythematous macule or patch that fades unless you scratch at it. And if you scratch at it, then you get this dermatographism, which increases and extends the itch, and you get a vicious um, uh, itch-scratch cycle going. Um, if you put a cast on somebody with atopic dermatitis, the skin clears up. So what do we know about what causes it? Well, for decades, we've known that atopic skin is different it has a lower itch threshold, 
it itches with temperature change. Have you ever noticed when you take the, the clothes off the kids with atopic dermatitis, they start rubbing their skin? And that's thought that the temperature change triggers the itch receptors to go off. If patients with atopic dermatitis are anxious, that triggers an itch response. Atopics tend to have hands and feet that are more sweaty. If you inject substances like mecalil or acetylcholine, that there's an increased response. So there's something chemically different in the skin of atopics. And we know that it's not just a skin thing, because you can give a kid with, with um, no atopic dermatitis a bone marrow transplant for some reason or other. And if the donor has atopic dermatitis, the recipient gets atopic dermatitis. So it's a systemic thing. And I think of atopic dermatitis skin as twitchy. And the lung epithelium and the nasal epithelium are also twitchy. So you can think of uh, eczema or atopic dermatitis as asthma of the skin, and asthma is atopic dermatitis in the lungs, for example. So what causes it? People have argued about this for ages. Is it something different or abnormal in the epidermis? And then everyone's excited about that now we'll talk about. Are there abnormal lipids in the epidermis? Maybe we're trying to put new lipids in the epidermis with all the ceramides. Are there abnormal enzymes in the epidermis? There's some evidence for that. And then for the last 30 years, people have thought that atopic dermatitis is a problem with the immune system. There are too many TH2 T helper cells. And so decades of research went into what can we do to modulate that inflammatory response? <clears throat> and it may be that we are all barking up the wrong tree with that. So um, a couple of years ago, there was a disguise, a dis exciting discovery that at least some people with atopic dermatitis have mutation in filaggrin, which means the, the skin can't hold on to its moisture. And we do, do know that atopics have decreased ceramides, or, which is a lipid. They can have an increase in proteases and then that immune response. So it may just be that the basic problem is dry skin. And we know that everybody with atopic dermatitis is dry. In areas that aren't dry, like in your armpits, they don't have atopic dermatitis. Um, and then if your skin gets dry enough, it becomes inflamed. So we've always focused on treating atopic dermatitis with a lot of moisturizers, but I think that that's last, since that filaggrin discovery, that's become even more important. So um, here is a picture, and I don't think the pointer shows very well in the back of the room, but we'll try. So here are two cells with a nuclei, and in between cells are all of these little things that rivet or Velcro the skin together. And one of them are the tight junctions. And Filaggrin is in a tight junction, and if there's a filaggrin mutation, then that junction between the two cells isn't quite as tight, and it allows water to evaporate, so there's increased transepidermal water loss. So can the epidemiology of atopic dermatitis cause us, tell us what causes it? Well, we do know that it's much more common than it used to be, by two to three-fold, and it's more common in industrialized or developed nations than it is in non-developed countries. Um, when Ger the two Germanys combined, there were interesting epidemiology studies looking at West Germany versus East Germany, because one was developed and one wasn't as developed, to try to figure out what was different in the two, in the two countries. Why was there less atopic dermatitis in East Germany and more in West Germany? And so the, six, the factors that were significant were smaller family sizes in, in West Germany, increased education and income, more migration and living in urban areas, and then the use of antibiotics. <coughs> so which or any of those factors is significant? It's hard to know, but that's what the, how the statistics uh, shook out. And um, comparing developed countries, Singapore with Malaysia, and the ethnic backgrounds are about the same, that in all the eth different ethnic groups, that it was Singapore that had more atopic dermatitis. So people have talked about the hygiene hypothesis, um, that we're too clean, that we're 
all meant to be walking around barefoot in manure in the, on the farm and get exposed to all kinds of pathogens. And that keeps our immune system in practice. And now we don't get exposed. And then when we do get exposed to some infection, then our body overreacts, our immune system overreacts. It's possible there's evidence for and against that. <coughs> but um, I think some, the, the exposure hypothesis is the last year or so becoming a little more, more popular. And that means too much stuff too late. Um, there's a great, a great study done at the University of Georgia a number of years ago about kids who have, are allergic to dogs. If you have a dog as an infant, it's not just one dog, you have to have two dogs, then you're less, less likely to develop a dog allergy, um, which is very interesting. It's, it implies that maybe you can induce tolerance or something. And so then that's been thought about as far as food allergies go, because for years, mothers have been told, no, you don't want to feed your babies too soon. You have to wait till six months or three months, and the time keeps changing. It used to be three months and six months. So you delay the introduction of solid foods. It's just formula breastfed before that. Now we're wondering if that was all wrong after all. Um, why are we seeing so many peanut allergies these days? Um, and it, it, there's a story about in Israel that nobody's allergic to peanuts. And it was apparently all Israeli babies, there's this popular pacifier-like gadget that contains a sweet treat in it that has peanuts in it. And it's thought that, well, maybe those, all those babies are being, intolerance is being induced by sucking on that peanut butter pacifier. So we really don't know about all these things, but a lot, there's a lot of interest in these things because it's so difficult to be allergic to foods. You go to school, your mom has to pack a special lunch, all those things. All right, so let's talk about treating atopic dermatitis. So the way, in which we start out with basic treatment, uh, and then things can get more complicated. But the way I think about it is, number one, you're trying to combat the dryness. If a lot of patients have filaggrin mutations, and probably their other patients, if they don't have a mutation in filaggrin, they have something, some other mutation we haven't figured out yet in something similar to the tight, to the tight junctions. So we work on the, the dryness, number one. And then number two is combating the inflammation, and then three is treat anything that's complicating the condition that we'll talk about a little bit. So basic skin care for atopic dermatitis or eczema, dry skin care, moisturizers, moisturizers, moisturizers. And it can be so hard to get people to do that. So that's the first thing I talk about. It's obvious to me that your all kids with atopic dermatitis are really dry. They will not get better unless we address that. Haven't you noticed that in your child's armpits there's no atopic dermatitis or under the diaper? It's almost always clear because the, 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 current, the modern diapers, if the kids are wearing the breathable disposables, they keep it humid like a greenhouse in there. It's perfect. Now, before the days of these super absorbent gel diapers, that the kids were wearing cloth diapers, the kids with atopic dermatitis had problems with diaper dermatitis because their skin was more sensitive and it was easily irritated. But with these absorbent things, the skin is kept um, humid, but not stopping wet. So that's a story that the family sometimes identify with. So ideally, every couple of hours, moisturizers are put on, if they, especially if the kids have severe diseases and in the parts of their body where they're severely involved. So moisturizers, they put the water back into the skin and they help it heal. We're trying to heal the barrier in, in our atopics. But which moisturizer? I don't even know the answer to that question now. And I'm perplexed. I go into CVS and I, I just have to turn around. There's so many bottles. And you know, all the companies are coming out with so many different variants. And you know, the reason for that is then if you've got 10 different types of such and such a, a product brand, that, that you have bigger shelf space. And then someone's more, the consumer is more likely to buy something of, of your brand compared to a competitor's brand that maybe have only two different types of lotion. So anyway, there are all these variations. It's really complicated. So um, here we'll look at the skin a little bit. So I want you to focus on the stratum corneum. So the stratum corneum are those 
yellow cells on the very surface of the skin. Those are dead keratinocytes. <clears throat> and you can think of them, I used to say they were like pancakes all stacked up, but then I heard someone give a talk and they compared them to cornflakes. And in order to hold the, the cornflakes together, you need to add butter and marshmallows, like you're making a cornflake bar. So the butter and the marshmallows, those are your moisturizing lotions and oils, et cetera. So we're trying to hydrate and glue together those dry cells in the stratum corneum. And um, it used to be taught in dermatology that Vaseline was bad because it clogged up the, the sweat ducts and clogged up the pores. And that myth is still out there. Um, but more than 10, 20 years ago, Peter Lyson at UCSF did a study where he labeled Vaseline on skin and proved that it doesn't just sit on the surface of the skin. You can see that label Vaseline penetrating down through the epidermis around all the little epidermal cells all the way down to the bottom of the epidermis. So the products we put on really do penetrate and they get in there. They're lipophilic. All right, so how do we choose a moisturizer? Well, you kind of know this. There are ointments, and an ointment is a combination of an oil plus wax. And then there are creams, which is an ointment that has water added to it. And then a, a, a lotion is a cream with more water added to it. So lotions have more water, creams have more water than ointments do. And when, when there's water in there, that, that allows bacteria to grow. So that means the company has to add preservatives to keep the product from going rancid. And so creams and lotions are more complicated chemically and more likely to cause uh, allergic contact dermatitis. So some of the newer higher tech moisturizers have plasticizers like the dimethicone. They may contain fancy lipids like ceramides and humectants such as urea and lactic acid. The trouble with those in kids is that they have, if there are excoriations, the kids, uh, they sting. And so then the compliance is bad. So I tend not to use them in kids. So what do you tell the families about bathing? Well, there's this, the dry method and the wet method. So the dry method is not very many baths, only occasionally a bath or a shower, followed by moisturizers and avoiding soap. And that, that dry method is called the Schultz Regimen. I think it was popularized, popularized in the 1960s by a study out in California. Um, and then people turned that around and started talking about the wet method. Sometimes it's called soak and seal. That's a complete flip from the dry method. And it is a daily or even two times a day bath or shower for 10 to 15 minutes so that a lot of water is absorbed into that stratum corneum. And then immediately a moisturizer is applied while the skin is still damp. Again, with minimal cleanser, no scrubbing. Um, well, the water doesn't have to be cold. You want it warm enough so it's comfortable, but you don't want it so hot that the kids sweat because atopics, if they sweat, then they get itching. And if the water's really hot, then it's more likely to dissolve the oils and the lotions that you've been working so hard to get in there. But it doesn't mean the kid has to take a cold, tepid bath. Warm, comfortably warm is perfectly fine. So for years, people have argued, well, which is better, the dry method or the wet method? And nobody knew. It's kind of tricky to do those studies, and it requires instruments and blah, blah, blah. Um, and as I came to Atlanta, and I think I, 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 30 years ago, and found that people here are hot and sweaty in the summertime, and they feel better if they take a shower or a bath. So it seemed to me that dry method was better for dry climates like California. But anyway, so recently there been, there's been a cute study where they compared the two. And it turns out it doesn't make any difference. So the reason we couldn't tell as clinicians which method worked better is because they end up being equivalent. So if you do the dry method, your skin, the graph is, it's always this humidified. It's pretty stable. If you do the soak and seal method, the, the, the humidification of the skin goes way up, and then it gradually drops down. But the average being, ends up being the same as it was in the, in the dry method. <clears throat> so to me, I don't really care whatever the family thinks is better for them.
So a word about uh, cleansers. Now, kids don't have smelly body oils that have to be dissolved with soap. So most dirt washes off with water. So they don't really need cleansers, period. Or maybe some gentle cleanser, the synthetic um, cleansers, this is gonna call syndets, uh, in their armpits and their crotch and their feet. And they tend to sweat on their scalps and so something, a mild cleanser on their scalps. That's really all they need. So what I say to people is a daily bath or shower is okay as long as you put on a moisturizer right away. Minimize the soap and what, what cleanser you use has to be mild and then don't scrub it. Occasionally I'll have a family who the, the parent wants to wash that rash away. You know, they think that skin is dirty. And then you find out, and you don't find out unless you ask, that the kid sits in a little tub and the, the, the mother just takes this washcloth and scrubs, 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 scrubs. And the child loves that because it's a form of scratching. Um, but that certainly does not help the skin. That just takes every bit of oil out of it. So then, which moisturizer? Well, I think of plain old Vaseline is the gold standard in a way because it doesn't sting and it's cheap. I think you can find, buy a five, 20, a five, gallon bucket of Vaseline for $5 or something like that. Everything else is much more expensive. And so Vaseline is fine, but many people don't like that feel of Vaseline because it makes their skin too greasy. So in general, I think our darker skin patients are drier and they have a thicker stratum corneum and don't sweat as much. And so they tend to tolerate Vaseline or ointments better than our Caucasian patients who have a thinner stratum corneum and get more sweaty but it varies tremendously. So you really ask, what would you, what feels better on your skin? A grease or cream or lotion? So we think of our skin as like a suit of armor. It keeps our body fluids inside. It protects us from invading chemicals and injury. And it works best if it's healthy. So when families get upset that yes, the treatment made my skin, my child's skin better, but as soon as I stop them, it comes right back that you have to say, well, it takes a while to heal the skin. And even though the skin looks healed with your eye, under the microscope, it may not be healed yet. So it may take, if your skin was ratchy for a year, it might take a year for it to heal. So we just have to continue the treatments. So then the second part of therapy is treating the inflammation. And so we've basically got two choices, a topical corticosteroid or a topical calcineurin inhibitor. So you, you all are familiar with the potency rankings of topical steroids, right? That's been drilled in. So there's seven. I teach this at all the medical students. And I have a chart similar to this one that I typed a, the handout I used to give for the medical students. I now keep in the office, and I give it to most families. And because um, topical steroids are really confusing, even for me. You know, every year there are new ones come out. There must be 400 different ones. I have trouble keeping them straight. So that I give them this chart and that has the six, the seven different groups and explain that the weak ones are the group six and sevens. And then I circle the one that they're on or the one that we're prescribing. The super strong ones, the ones in the twos, we don't use an atopic dermatitis because they cause there's too much absorption and too much atrophy of the skin. But our workhorses on the body of patients with atopic dermatitis are the mediums, the mid-potency topical steroids. And then I'll circle the ones that I've chosen um, to, to, to prescribe. And that seems, I used to think it was, I was doing pretty well to the concept of, I'm gonna give you something, this weak cream is for the face, and this medium one is for the body. And people did seem to get that idea, and they would come back, and most of the time wouldn't be doing things backwards. But I think adding this, handing out the chart and circling the stuff has really increased this understanding of my patients, and um, that I'm seeing fewer mistakes, and they appreciate not being talked down to. So in general, you try to choose the least potent product that's effective, weaker on face and body folds, and mid-potency or weak if it's mild dermatitis on the rest of the body. But the product shouldn't sting. And I'm really big on sting, and we'll talk more about that in, in a minute. In a minute. Um, so our old-fashioned workhorse is trimcinolone for mid-potency. 
<laughs> but then you know, the, the newer um, second generation topical corticosteroids were designed by the company so to have some adv advantages that maybe they have fewer systemic and local effects. Um, for example, the half-life of the old-fashioned halogenated compounds, trimcinolone and valisone, it's pretty long, whereas um, locoid, for example, it's only 90 minutes. So they're en engineered so that very little gets absorbed through the skin. So usually with a mid-potency topical steroid, only about 1% to 2% of what you put on gets through. But even what does get through gets metabolized more rapidly, some of those, some of those um, newer, newer ones. So there may be some pluses. So these studies were very interesting. Um, in, in showing that sometimes there's more absorption than we think. Now, the company that makes Dipraline was doing this study trying to get it through the FDA and approval for children. And in order to get it through the FDA, they had to do these and uh, uh, challenge tests to look at adrenal suppression. And much to their surprise, these are patients age 1 to 12 with atopic dermatitis who had a significant body surface area that was treated for only two to three weeks. And the torturous and challenge test was abnormal in 58%. The company was shocked. So they didn't get the approval for, for, for using it on kids with atopic dermatitis. And likewise, diprosone lotion um, came up with significant absorption. And then Clobex, Clobetasol, um, and Cutivate, which I think of as fairly innocuous, um, a couple of those patients had a little bit of at least transient adrenal suppression. So yes, things get, do get through, but I'm adamant about trying to avoid the super strong ones, class ones and twos. So what about ointments versus creams? Well, the vehicle is important because if the skin is humidified, a, a, a molecule in the cortisone molecule can penetrate the stratum corneum better if the stratum corneum is wet. A dry stratum corneum is a better defense for your body, i.e., where do you get athlete's foot? Between the toes. Why is that? It's wet there. Why do you get more athlete's feet during the summer than you do in the winter? So if you're doing a, a clinical trial for athlete's foot, you want to make sure it gets started in the summer so you can re recruit patients better because it's sweaty and hot and moist there. So the stratum corneum is weakened and so the fungus can invade. So we're using it, that, that, that principle the opposite way when we're, instead of trying to keep things out, we're trying to get our drug through. So we want the stratum corneum um, moisturized. But if we prescribe an ointment, some people don't like them at all. And if you prescribe a cortisone ointment or a moisturizing ointment and the patient doesn't use it, then your, your treatment is not going to be a very effective. So you really have to uh, individualize your treatment recommendations. So all the companies are trying to make their, their uh, base better. So it's more like an ointment, so it moisturizes better. So an example is low-quid lipocreme. Um, but it doesn't feel greasy like a tree. So an ointment, they're trying to make a, an, an ointment that feels more like a cream. So we talked about those principles. So then where do the topical calcineurin inhibitors fit in? So Protopic and Eladil both came out in the early 2000s. And um, like cyclosporin, they block calcineurin. And when people, when cyclosporin first came out, and then it was used orally for psoriasis and it worked great, People thought, oh, hallelujah, let's put it on, this, on the skin topically, and maybe it'll work there that way too. It didn't work at all. And the reason for that is it's a really big molecule. And the, if the molecule is big, it doesn't get through the stratum corneum as well. So then they started looking at other immune modulators, and both Trichrolimus and Pimacrolimus are smaller molecules than calcineurin, than, than cyclosporin. Then they're almost the same. They differ by one atom and one bond. So they were both approved for children age two and up, which occasionally is an issue. You get just insurance denials for, for younger ones, but you know, usually we can get around that a little bit. Um, the Eladil Novartis company did their original trials on, on children three months and older. 
So there is Elidale safety data on kids, and it, it was just as safe on the little ones as it was on the older kids. And it does, they, both of them seem to work. And with very minimal and uh, infrequent absorption. However, um, like topical steroids, when you stop the calcineurin inhibitors, the atopic dermatitis returns, so it's not a permanent cure. And then maybe what's not emphasized is that neither of them work on thick lichenified areas. So even the original, um, I think it was the Elodil study, that um, it's ineffective on the extremities. So in my opinion, these drugs are great for faces and body folds, and they and maybe mild atopic dermatitis elsewhere, but they don't work that great on extremities if the disease is significant. But so they're wonderful to have that available for eyelids and facial dermatitis. And maybe for preteens when we're worried about stria formation, especially in the inner thighs, then to switch them over to a calcineurin inhibitor. So we've talked about using moisturizers and topical anti-inflammatory agents. Then there's common complicating factors, and the big one I think about is staph superinfections or secondary impetigenization. So with staph, most of our patients with atopic dermatitis are colonized with staph, as are their mothers, not necessarily their fathers was on one cute study, but the family members can be colonized with the same strain. They're impetigenized or superinfected, I think is the more current term for that. It's easier to spell, for one thing. And so those are the patients that are infected, but they're not sick, so sick you have to put them in the hospital. But then there are other patients every once in a while that are super infected, but they're sick. You know, they're erythrodermic, they're chilling, and they're, they're too weak to go to work or go to school. And they're sick enough, you end up admitting them to the hospital. If we do blood cultures on those patients, the blood cultures are negative, so it's not as if they're, they're septic, but they're ill. And I could never figure out what the difference between why were some of them just infected and some, why were some of them sick. And it turns out it's the, the number of organisms that are on the skin. So there's a logarithmic difference between the, the numbers of organisms on the patients, the surface of the skin of the patients who are toxic versus the numbers that are when the patients who are just super infected. So it's usually staph is our organism, strep sometimes. And um, the last five, five, 10 years, it's been MRSA in many patients, but not all patients. So here are examples, you've all seen this, of st staph superinfection with oozing and crusting. And where the skin is infected, it often is more inflamed. Around the ears and those fissures is a common place for superinfection. And the primary lesion in the infection is a folliculitis, so these small little superficial pustules in the follicular opening. And especially on the wrist there, you can see that one very superficial pustule. Now, those pustules itch, and so a patient will tend to scratch them off. And so then they come into the office looking like this. So there aren't any intact pustules because the patients carefully pick them all off because they feel it feels better to have them scratched off. But you can see where they were. So that patient is still significantly infected and needs antibiotics if their eczema is flaring. So MRSA has been just a nightmare. So you know a lot about that. I'm not going to go into these slides very much. But a lot of the patients with MRSA have skin problems. And many of the MRSA patients who maybe have osteomyelitis also had a history of atopic dermatitis. So an example of one of my early patients, um, had lifelong atopic dermatitis, he used to get infected periodically. And then he got furuncles. So as you know, MRSA is more likely to be associated with deeper staph infections rather than those superficial pustules. So small abscesses and true furuncles. And treated with those, and it got better, but then they recurred, tried all these different antibiotics. And then the grandparents got it. Um, and then he was admitted to the hospital for IV vancomycin. An infectious disease wanted to treat him for three weeks, and so a PICC line was inserted. And so I was just horrified to think that I was going to have all these little kids 
been leading with, with MR, this MRSA that was uh, beginning in, in epidemic proportions in, this, in our area, admitted for PIC lines. And then his PIC line came out and the staff came right back. And fortunately, it responded to doxycycline. And then I went to a meeting and my friend from Texas was talking about bleach baths. And so that's when we started bleach baths. And thank goodness that the bleach baths have kept patients from needing PIC lines for IV vancomycin most of the time. So uh, bleach baths, so one teaspoon per gallon or a half a cup of Clorox bleach in a, in a normal size bathtub, and usually uh, three times a week for 15 minutes, two to three times a week for 15 minutes. Um, there's one paper by the group in Chicago suggesting that all kids do better if they have bleach baths, and I'm not sure how I feel about that if I agree. I think it's, what, it's, it's hard for the parents to deal with this disease, and just putting on lotions a couple times a day is hard enough. So if the kid doesn't have a lot of trouble with infections and doesn't have severe disease, they've maybe had no infections or one infection, I haven't been bothering with the bleach baths, but I, I push them if the kids are having several in, staph infections a year or their skin is not doing well. So other infections occur in the atopics, molluscum is more frequent, and eczema or herpeticum or HSV. And fungal infections occasionally, and that can be confusing because fungal infections scale too. And then um, an important phase of basic management is spending a little time talking with the family because this is a tough disease, and both the child and the family are sleep-deprived. So I reassure the family that, in my opinion, 90% of atopic dermatitis kids outgrow the disease by age five. Now, there are umpteen studies in the literature that show everything all over the, 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 map, the, more, the board on that. But that's the most favorable one, and that's the one I like, and that's the one I think I believe in. Most of the time, people outgrow their disease, or if they may have a little bit of atopic dermatitis on the, as an adult, here and there, or focal hand dermatitis as an adult, but they don't have the widespread disease that the toddlers can have. And then for the patients who have significant disease, there's a national support group called NEES, the National Eczema Association, which is just wonderful, has great materials on their website. So then we've been focusing on basic treatment. And what do you do when basic treatment fails? So those are the patients that come to me at the university. So what do I see? Well, sometimes it's really simple. I know you've told people to use moisturizers. I know you have, but no, they're not using them. And it's hard to understand why, because it's so obvious, but so sometimes they just need, the family needs the, quote, Emory treatment. And the university is saying, you have to do this, and just reinforcing what they've already been told. And then another common mistake is they're not using the topical steroid that you prescribed appropriately. And a big one is they ran out of medication. Now this is mostly, I think, an error with the pediatricians. The pediatricians are so afraid of over-prescribing or families overusing the topical corticosteroids that they try to, they prescribe just a tiny tube. Um, or the family said, yes, it got better, but when I stopped the cream, it came back. Well, I'm sure you told them it was a chronic disease and that was gonna happen, but they forgot that. So they come back to me, they're not using atopical steroids anymore, and they can't understand why their atopic dermatitis isn't better. And sometimes what was prescribed was just too weak. Hydrocortisone isn't gonna be very effective on severely lichenified dermatitis on the extremities. And then there are a lot of families that have steroid phobia. So let's talk about those a little bit. Now remember how much med to prescribe. It takes 15 to 30 grams to cover an adult body once. So if you're putting a topical steroid on over, all, all over twice a day, they need large quantities. So one 30 gram tube isn't gonna do much. And so patients need refills in large quantities. And again, we talked about this communication. Came back, they need to realize that we're suppressing the dermatitis, allowing the skin to heal. So I tend to say to families, use this cream until you see me back in two months, even if the skin is clear. Or keep using this cream until the rash is gone. 
and then use it for an extra two weeks until under the microscope the rash is gone. That allows the skin maybe to be completely healed. And then don't stop at cold turkey. Taper it instead of twice a day. Use it once a day for a week or two, then every other day, and then try stopping it and see if it comes back. And as soon as it comes back, treat it aggressively right away. And then I'll tell them, in my opinion, if you aggressively use the topical steroids, you end up by the end of the year using less topical steroid than you would have if you halfway treated it. Then this disease never calms down. So the steroid phobia in the families, this is time consuming and it can be really frustrating and annoying. So the National Eczema Association did a, did a survey. Uh, so here are some um, misconceptions among the families that these corticosteroids are not, is not testosterone. So people have confused that one. You emphasize the systemic absorption is really minimal. If, if we prescribe an appropriate product. The main, major known concern is atrophy, but it's rarely a clinical problem in young children. Stria can develop in teenagers, and that's when I get ner ner nervous. So when I see a preteen that's nine or so, before I know they're gonna hit their growth spurt, so that's when I try to get the, rid of the topical steroids on their legs, even if that means they're gonna be rashy for a year or two or maybe prescribe a topical um, calcineurin inhibitor. So then I'm big on stings. So the other thing I screen, why do they end up at Emory? Um, are, do any of the products you're using or have used in the past, do they hurt or, or, or burn or sting? Does your child cry when they're plied? And um, the parents are surprised that they've never been asked that before and that sometimes they didn't even think about it because yes, the child screams and runs all over the house and won't let them put the cream on, but the family just thought the child was being bad. And because and when the mother puts the cream on her, it's perfectly fine because the mother is, doesn't, isn't a sensitive skin person. So that there's a subset of the, of the population that have super sensitive skin that stings with some products. So they're called stingers, or people with hypersensitive skin. Um, there's quite a bit of uh, literature on that in the rosacea literature. The people, you know, the rosacea patients tend to have that type one skin, and sometimes it can be hard to find products that they can tolerate. So the sting is not a mild thing. It's a severe burning sensation that lasts at least 10 minutes and doesn't dissipate for 20 to 30 minutes. So a knowledgeable adult will run to the to the sink to splash off that product because it hurts so much. It's more common in, on the face in women, in orientals, and in atopics, and in those with a family history of stings. So if I identify a kid who's a stinger, I ask, well, do, do either of the parents sting? Or sometimes there'll be a grandmother who's a, who's a known stinger. Now you can duplicate sting, and you know, Kligman has this, what's called the 10% lactic acid uh, uh, test, which is basically uh, amlactin or lachydrin, and you put it on the nasolabial fold and immediately it stings. And we know it has something to do with the stratum corneum because it, it sting increases with tape stripping. So if the stratum corneum is damaged as it is in atopic dermatitis, then sting is gonna be more of a problem. So um, a number of years ago, I, I, I put together all my stingers. I wrote down their names and we did a little study. And we, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a year or two time, we gathered 39 kids with sting who came, came to the office because they were having trouble with their atopic dermatitis. And um, it could be that moisturizer, Eucerin cream was a bad one for my stingers. Elecon was also a bad one for my stingers. Some products tended to be better tolerated. And that it wasn't any one preservative or ingredient. And in the literature, there are lots of different things that can cause stings. So you can't tell if a product is gonna sting by looking at the label. The best test is to put a drop on the nasal labial fold. And if it stings, then it shouldn't be used. Now, not only does it hurt, but if you put a product that stings on a stinger, it aggravates their dermatitis. So it makes it much worse. So if you can identify a stinger and change the products, the family is eternally grateful 
and you could almost cure their child. Now, they still have atopic dermatitis, but it's just it's ordinary atopic dermatitis. It's not out of control. So then there's the issue of food allergies. Now, I try to stay away from this one somewhat. Now, I, in my opinion, if I'm seeing a kid with atopic dermatitis that I can't get better with these basic things we've talked about, then I, I ask myself about food allergies. And any kid that I think might have food allergies, I'd send to the, the, the pediatric allergist. And they do the RAS testing and the skin testing. And I think it, it's a problem if we do the RAS testing, because what in the world am I going to do with abnormal, those abnormal test results? And the pediatricians, I think, get themselves backed into a corner with the same problem. What does it mean when the RAS is blah, 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 and what do I do about it? So and, and our, our pediatric allergists at our children's hospital strongly advise that that kids not be RAS tested and until they're seen by the pediatric allergist. Because um, we have to be so careful not to harm the child with this restricted diet, an overly restricted diet. Because there have been deaths, there have been deaths in our hospital from malnutrition in kids who are malnourished and have kwashior core because someone, the parents sometimes put them on a diet that didn't have enough protein in it. When you're little, you can get away with not as much protein, but then all of a sudden you're two or three and your dietary needs increase and all of a sudden the milk or whatever it is you're on is no, soy milk is no longer enough protein for you. And then the other thing that happens is the kids, that can, their diet can be so over-restricted that they become picky eaters. And then even if you try to reintroduce foods and eat this, eat that, they refuse. And sometimes those kids need to have G-tubes put in to make sure that they're getting adequate nutrition. So the food allergy stuff I think is very complicated. And sometimes it's very significant in identifying a food trigger that aggravates the atopic dermatitis can make all the difference in getting the disease under control. Uh, in fact, there's a form of food allergy called eosinophilic gastroenteritis or eosinophilic esophagitis also where the atopic could have systemic symptoms with diarrhea, failure to thrive, from basically atopic dermatitis in their GI tract is the way I look at that, and they get protein leak. And if you do a biopsy of the intestinal mucosa, there's eosinophilia in that. And the treatment is to stop the offending food, and in the kid, with the kids, it's usually dairy. All right, so here's one of those patients. So then the last thing is, if you're doing everything right, and you're telling your families the right things, you're prescribing the right things, and compliance is excellent, then what else are you missing? Maybe you've got the wrong diagnosis. So for example, is this atopic dermatitis? Now notice how popular it is, that yes, atopic dermatitis becomes lichenified, but usually it's a big patch that's lichenified. It's not these small papules. It almost looks like molluscum. So what is this? You know, you know it from this. So nickel dermatitis, right? Nickel dermatitis is typically papular. So sometimes you can tell from the distribution, but sometimes patients with nickel dermatitis will have an, an id reaction on their extremities. It tends to be on the extensor surfaces of their extremities rather than in the flexural areas, which is a, which is a tip. But nickel dermatitis is different from atopic dermatitis. The treatment is completely different. Avoidance. Patients with immunodeficiencies can have a dermatitis problem. These are babies with hypogammaglobulinemia. And then this, this one, this is one of my favorites. So the little boy there on the left, he has classic atopic dermatitis on his body, and he certainly has very acute dermatitis on his cheeks. But is that atopic dermatitis or not? Now, the degree of dermatitis on his cheeks is so much greater than that on his body, that's a little bit odd. And that we see that sometimes in babies, especially before we had Elodil and Protopic that we could throw on there. Um, so, but usually by this age, the, the face would be easy to manage. It wouldn't be this bad. So then, well, what are we missing? And so then I wondered, maybe is he allergic to the product that he was using? So he was using Westcourt. So I put a little dab of Westcourt under one of those contact dermatitis stainless steel buttons in a fin chamber on his buttock, and you can see the positive. 
So he had an allergic contact dermatitis to some ingredient in the topical corticosteroid that was being used. So that's an un unusual thing, especially in young children it's unusual, but it happens. And in my experience, the older the patient, the more years with atopic dermatitis, the more years they've been, their skin has been exposed to all kinds of stuff. The products you prescribe have preservatives, all kinds of other things in them that they can become sensitized to. So when an older child has atopic dermatitis that's not getting better, I really think hard about have they developed an allergic contact dermatitis and work hard at trying to simplify their topical regimen to try to eliminate as many things as possible and simplify. So here is an adult that we admitted to our hospital because he had such extensive, what we thought was atopic dermatitis. He got great, did great in the hospital, almost cleared up after a couple of days of topical steroids and greasing up. And then the next morning we came in and he flared up in the hospital, that's odd. And it turned out he'd taken a bath and then it was an oatmeal bath. And then it turned out that he had a positive patch test to oats. And lo and behold, in the past, he was worked in a factory, an oatmeal factory, and that, yes, he'd become sensitized. So allergic contact dermatitis does occur in this population and can complicate management. And then well, lastly here, there are atopic dermatitis mimickers that I now have two kids who have what's called familial sarcoidosis. So although it looks like atopic dermatitis, sort of, it, it, it doesn't itch and it, the skin is soft. You know, it's usually atopic dermatitis skin when you palpate it is rough and, because it's so dry. This is soft. And if you do a biopsy, there's a granulomatous infiltrate. And these patients can develop uveitis and severe arthritis. So to wrap up, atopic dermatitis principles of management. Combat the inflammation, combat the dryness, treat the complicating factors, especially infection, eliminate or minimize known triggers, and then span time with educating the family and reassuring the family. And remember that there's eczema association is there for patient support. They met in Atlanta, I think it was two years ago. Um, and most, most kids outgrow this. So here is another one of those drawings. Exa makes me feel like I've been alienated. So the kid with the green face, right? And then this other one's, I want a new body. It's tough on these little kids. So we're hope we're, we'll be coming up with cures. Meanwhile, you can change lives out there just by treating people appropriately. And most of the time our eczema kids do great. All right. So, are there any um, any are there any questions? Uh huh. Right there. Um, oral steroids, I hardly ever use. Um, that I never use them in a kid who's infected, and because I see that as a problem a lot. So if you treat an infected atopic with an antibiotic plus prednisone, they get better. But you can't tell whether you chose the right antibiotic or not clinically. Um, and then if you chose the wrong antibiotic, then when you stop the steroid in two weeks or whatever it is, then they rebound with a vengeance and then end up in the hospital or back in the hospital. So my rule of thumb is you do a culture, choose an antibiotic, and then if the patient gets better in a day or two, because often within 24 hours, if you put them on the right antibiotic, their skin is better, then I don't mind using a, 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 a short prednisone course at that point. But often at that point, they don't need it because their skin is already better just with the, with the appropriate antibiotic. And then it was, it was other, pardon? Oh, antihistamines. Well, I don't know. Um, I don't think this is a histamine-mediated disease, and so I don't know that they're that helpful. Yes, we all use them. I tell families I think they decrease the itch by about 25%, but they don't get rid of them, of it. So yes, especially cetirizine or Zyrtec, I think it's helpful at night because unlike hydroxyzine that wears off in four hours, it lasts at least 12. And so sometimes that can get a family, like get through the night, and so everybody's more comfortable. But I just don't think that they are the answer. Yes? 
Yeah, phototherapy. Um, I haven't used much of that, and maybe we should use more. But I think partly it's because here we are in a sunny climate, and if we get the kids in the pool, that they get quite a bit of phototherapy. It's hard to get kids into the office to do phototherapy. Nobody wants to say. <laughs> uh, in general, we're not supposed to do phototherapy in kids, but um, if we're here sending them out in the sun, there's probably a, a, a role for phototherapy. So I certainly don't disagree with limited phototherapy. Yes? Well, I can just tell you that eucerin uh, cream tended to be a, a problem, but eucerin lotion was okay. Um, and Elecon was a, was a problem, both the cream and the ointment. And Locoid and Cutivate were good. And I think Topicort was tolerated. That used to be, at the university, we were no longer allowed to have samples. So what I would used to do is I would bring in a few sample tubes and put little dabs of each different one on the kid, and, which is a good cream. This was a good one or is this a bad one? And then they could tell you, and the kid would back away because they were so afraid of having a cream that would sting put on. And Then you choose one that feels good and they would smile and reach for the cream to put more on it because they liked it so much. And now that we can't have samples, I don't have the luxury of being able to try these different things. But in general, that, that they'll tell you right away if what you're using is good. And I think the companies have gotten much more in tune with this also. A hand? Oh, uh, we're talking about wet wraps. Yeah. Right. I, have no, I think wet wraps can be wonderful sometimes. It's a little tricky to do, but it's not that, that impossible to do. And they certainly are moisturizing. So an easy way to do that is two pairs of pajamas or thermal underwear. And then you put a towel, a, a shower curtain or something on the bed, and then a towel, and then the kid in their wet wraps with another towel, and then something warm on top. And do you have a dentist that would stay away on the Yes. Okay. Yeah, when the medical, well, there was a medical student that was interviewing in our department last month, and she, did the, she was telling us she did a cute little study with her professor where they looked at, does it matter whether you put the steroid on first or the moisturizer on first? Because you know, patients sometimes will have preferences, and I don't think anybody knew. And they did this little study, and then there, there's a little study, and I don't know the details because it hasn't been published, but uh, it didn't make any difference. And I think that the products dissolve in one another, so that's why it doesn't matter. Hand there? Every time if I'm going to prescribe them. I think you have to say something because you don't want them to read the black box warning in the package label and be surprised. No, I personally don't. My family gets them. I tell them that. I don't think there's any evidence. I'm sorry, that usually means the Emory computer system is down in the hospital, the clinic. <laughs> so they send out every physician in the whole place, you know, gets this beep. <laughs> so, um, so I tell them um, that, I, that it was a, a concern um, that, uh, that was really mostly political because the FDA wanted to get the Elidil commercials off of TV because the Novartis company, in my opinion, was being overly aggressive in their marketing and had umpty-ump ads on TV with little toddlers wandering around with atopic dermatitis. And the implication with every kid with eczema should be on their product. And the FDA was furious because they approved the drug for children more than two who had recalcitrant dermatitis that didn't respond to traditional therapy. Um, so they slapped, the FDA didn't have the power to um, just limit the drug, but they could, or take the, the TV, the commercials off TV, but they could make the TV commercials onerous by the company having to go through all the black box warnings so that no parent in their right mind would want their child to be on the drug. So then the company voluntarily pulled the commercials. 
So a lot of that was, you know, they were, they were, then there were theoretical concerns about lymphoma, CTCL, but that just didn't pan out. There, there just haven't been many cases reported of, of all that. So it seems as if everything is fine, in my opinion. And? Yes, rare patients, but that's a basic therapy. I think they're overused. In my opinion, a lot of the patients who end up on those have a, an allergic contact dermatitis, or my, my uh, boss is big on patients who are allergic to dyes, dyes and medications, dyes and vitamins and things that trigger dermatitis. So a lot of the patients with dermatitis that needs to be on an immunosuppressive like that have an undiagnosed trigger. And sometimes you have to put them on something to get everything calmed down so that you can figure it all out. All right, well, I've enjoyed being here. I hope that this will help you managing your kids and families with atopic dermatitis.